From National Securities Corporation, it's the Agribusiness Advisor Podcast, where we discuss insights and trends from an investment banking perspective with the investors, corporate leaders, and other stakeholders participating in the industries that grow, process, and market the food that we consume. I'm Ivan Saval, and I oversee the Agribusiness and Food Coverage Group, providing capital markets and financial advisory. All podcast episodes are for informational purposes only and are not to be construed as a solicitation of securities. Any thoughts expressed by myself and or our guests are solely our own and are not those of National Securities Corporation. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Joe Kearns. He and his wife, Karen Kearns, are the founding partners of Kearns & Associates, a risk management firm that specializes in working with the protein complex, as well as providing insight on on the grains. Joe has been a a good friend and a colleague of mine for several years now, so I'm happy to have him join us. Joe, thank you very much. Happy to be here, Ivan. You know, I think uh, the best way that we start these podcasts, and it was always interesting to sort of frame out uh, uh, the individual on the call and, and give a little bit of a background. So, Joe, if you could just give a, a brief description of your background and your in ag and how you got into the industry uh, and sort of what uh, what keeps you in the in the ag space. Uh, I, Ivan, uh, you know, the, the great Wayne Gretzky one time commented that, uh, you know, that, that he skates to where the puck is going, <clears throat> and that was the secret to his success. Uh, I, I only knew one puck, and, and that's uh, and so I had to, I had to ride the only horse that uh, that I had in my stable here. I suppose uh, I grew up out in the country uh, in Northeast Iowa. My father worked for John Deere. I was surrounded by agriculture my entire life. I started working uh, in 1986 for Archer Daniels Midland, and uh, back in those days, it was a very difficult time inside of uh, uh, production agriculture, no matter what you were producing, whether it was uh, agronomic side or animal agriculture, uh, but we really kind of hung with it. Uh, uh, it was what I knew I, what I wanted to do, uh, and so you kind of fight and scrimp for the, for the jobs that were available. All the smart guys went into the chemical industry, and, and uh, uh, those of us that weren't quite as smart went into the grain side of it, but there was a silver lining to doing so, is uh, during those years, things were so difficult that few people in my age group, I uh, actually committed themselves to the grain industry, and and you kind of rock along for several years, and then lo and behold, the ethanol boom comes along, uh, and folks were were at a quandary. Uh, corn had always been two dollars a bushel, and and uh, uh, perhaps was always going to be two dollars a bushel. So we had this major disruption inside the input markets in animal agriculture, and I was working for a, a pork producer at that particular point in time. Uh, and what happened was uh, suddenly the demand uh, for the services of the disciplines that I had, <clears throat> excuse me, with someone of my age group, is there just flat weren't people around to do it? And so I found myself uh, in a position uh, where where we had the trust and the experience to, to start our own business. And so it kind of started from corporate ag, moved into production agriculture, and here roughly 10 years ago, as you said, uh, Karen and I started the business. And that's uh, that. it's been a really, really fun ride here for the last several years. When you were at, uh, at ADM, were you, were you, were you on the trading side? 
conflict management? Yeah, so, you know, when you started out of college, there was a training program at the time uh, that took you to several different spots. You went up and down the Illinois River at grain elevators. Uh, I found myself really falling in love with the soy processing industry and spent uh, uh, three of my five years inside the soy uh, business there. We kind of learned the ropes. You learned what the crush spreads were. You learned uh, uh, the, the, the basis manipulation. And I still, I still uh, have, a, have a huge affinity for the crush side of it, for the soy complex and, and uh, some, of the, some of the little innuendos that go on. Uh, we, had one, we had one just today, actually. It's uh, the delivery market comes out against the December. And you've got basis trading at 40 under in Iowa. Uh, if your name is, is ADM or Cargill, you can deliver at five under, yet you don't. And we only get kind of the rogue nation right now that delivers. And, and you might scratch your head and say, why? Well, once you're in that industry, you understand why. And that's uh, so they can support board crush for the further months. They, they could have a temporary win, but it would compromise their earnings on the backside. And so just kind of understanding some of the rhythms of the markets and the whys behind the what has proved very, very beneficial as we roll forward. If I'm an investor, what uh, and, and I wanted to look at the swine sector as an asset class for potential review, and I'm new to the space. Um, what what what? Where are we in the sector? Uh, what are some metrics that that I should be paying attention to? Um, you know, is this an attractive time to get into the space? Are you seeing expansion? Are you seeing consolidation? And where in the entire seg uh, segment might be the best place to attract uh, you know, outside capital? Is it on the production side? Is it on the input side, uh, animal feed, nutrition? Is it on the packing side? Uh, just your view on, on the whole spectrum uh, would be really helpful. Sure. Um, I think from the outside looking in, you would view the pork industry as uh, being on the mature side of the bell-shaped curve. Uh, I would contend that while that might be accurate, the, the mature side has an incredibly long tail associated with it. And, and let me kind of tease this out just a little bit. Is back in uh, 2014, uh, the swine industry experienced something called PED. When we went through the PED phase, it was something we'd never experienced before. And the response was uh, on, the, on the revenue side is that prices went sky high. And they stayed there uh, uh, to the point where uh, the Iowa State evaluation uh, done by Dr. Lee Schultz had to change the scale on the graph in order to incorporate producer profits at the time. We literally doubled what had then been the highest profits per head. And, and instead of just falling off the cliff, and, and uh, you know, in recent history, once you saw this high path avian influenza that came in 2015, provided a very, very similar spike, but then all, all of a sudden you had the exhale, and, and, the, and the, anything with feathers uh, perhaps suffered over the last couple of years and before they've got their feet back underneath us. Uh, the, the pork side of it had a very gentle glide slope. We were profitable in 14, 15, 16. We're going to be profitable in 17. And the forward curve for 2018 looks incredibly profitable right now, someplace in the 15 to $20 per head for the entire year. G given where we sit with the expansion, where we've been three to three and a half percent over the last couple of years, a conventional model would say that prices have to be down uh, someplace in the neighborhood of six or seven percent, yet they aren't. 
it, it's we've got this this underlying demand factor that's both on a domestic as well as a worldwide basis that's allowed prices to stay high in the face of increased production. And to me, that is a very, very key component where you've got to say, my traditional model is not working. Something else is at play. What is it? And that's where, that's where I think that uh, this whole protein evolution is just taking hold. I just studied a, a chart that came out from the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund that shows what uh, what global GDP is looking like from 2017 through 2030, and it's a, you know it's a it's a very very smooth slope from where we've come to where we're going. No great big aberrations in play. And if you superimpose what is protein demand associated with global uh, GDP, is you find out that we're going to have to have nearly 40 percent more protein available to the world between now and 2030 than we have. And it is physically impossible to do. And so, by the way, R squared on what I just shared with you is in excess of 0.99. This this is not just some abstract where you've got to squint in order to see a trend line. This is a very, very highly correlated issue. Uh, And and unless you think that the world uh, global GDP is going to dissolve or or there's going to be some huge disruptive event that occurs inside there, it's Anybody that's in that's in animal agriculture is going to be a winner. Now let's circle this back around to your specific question: Is where do you place your chips? And, and uh, uh, certainly from the production side of it, is having a land base is absolutely critical. After the boom that we saw in the ethanol era of land values, it took uh, average Iowa farm ground or average Midwest farm ground. Let's just use rough numbers from $2,500 an acre up to $10,000 an acre, a fourfold increase in value. It was a windfall that came to the land base. And we've seen that back off here lately as corn is traded down below the cost of production is I see another upswing coming into the marketplace. Now, it's probably not for another three or four years. Uh, The USDA just came out and said, we're going to have 91 million acres of corn, 91 million acres of soybeans. And if you kind of follow through the balance sheets, we're going to have nearly a 3 billion bushel carryover next year. That is not the stuff that high-priced corn or high-priced farm ground is made of. But in the long term, Ivan, I think that it's an absolutely wonderful investment in order to have a, a, a land base that's associated that could be converted either into the agronomic side or into the uh, animal side of it by the placement of barns, whether it's, uh, I don't care whether it's poultry or, or, or pigs or anything uh, that is going to satisfy what I described as this nearly insatiable world demand for protein. The United States is uniquely positioned to be able to participate. Uh, I think our friends up in Canada are in a very similar uh, place. So let's call it North America production looks very, very capable of satisfying that demand. Uh, the most logical spot on the planet to do so is probably Brazil or Argentina. And yet we have such such political instability in some of those countries that it makes it difficult in order to place assets there with any promise of long-term return uh, of just physically getting your money back out, exchange rate uh, valuation differences aside. It's just the confidence that you have. As many warts as we have in the United States, we still have something going for us. It's a rule of law 
that allows foreign investment in our court system to be viewed exactly the same as a domestic uh, uh, individual that was uh, uh, having a, a complaint. The protection goes both ways, and that attracts capital. Our infrastructure is better uh, uh, at outsourcing. Our FDA inspection process has the confidence of the entire world. We have everything going for us. We've got productive soils. We've got uh, increasing yields. We've got uh, productivity as far as advancements inside of the genetic components uh, of, of any species that make a more efficient conversion as we roll forward here. Just everything is coming up roses, Ivan. I, I really like the prospects of both those that are currently engaged in, in uh, uh, animal agriculture production as well as the outside investment that's coming in. In the last, uh, well, in the last year, 2017, we've got four new packing plants uh, that have come onto the market. Two were retrofits of older facilities, and then the two new facilities, one in Sioux City, Iowa, and the other one in Coldwater, Michigan, are greenfield projects that have started up. Up until then, uh, up until this year, we've averaged one plant every 10 years coming into this industry. And suddenly we're going to have uh, four in 2017 and the other one, the Prestige facility in Eagle Grove, Iowa, coming online in November of 2018. There's just been tremendous growth in the infrastructure, which is allowing the shackle space for the increased production on the ground in order to make it through it. And perhaps even uh, a bit more of that farm gate revenue to come back to the production side relative to the processing side. I think both, both entities are going to remain profitable. Uh, but but it's it's the, the the balance and the share is going to be just kind of we're going to take the lid off if you will of shackle space capacity so that the production components uh, are able to participate a little bit more wholly. So you've already got a relatively wealthy system in animal agriculture, and I think the prospects for that to remain so are are uh, uh, very very high. In uh, active investment, we see it on a daily basis. Uh, agronomic side is a, a bit of a different case. Um, I recently had an opportunity to address a bank group uh, where I gave the livestock outlook, and I, even, I would have been better off in standing up and saying for five minutes, guys, don't worry. The hog sector is fine. You need to worry about your corn and soy farmers and sat down and allowed that to occur and, and because that was by far uh, the most encompassing concern of a financial institution is how do I make money at, uh, at $3.50 corn? And the answer is actually pretty easy. It's uh, uh, you produce 250 bushels to the acre, and that seems to be what we're able to prove out here recently. Yeah, I think you know what you're talking about really really depends on the the growth also on export markets, wouldn't you say? I mean, isn't it um, fair to say that the U.S. is sort of at a you know at, at a point of saturation in terms of, of growth and consumption and, and and really to see the kinds of returns the producers are looking for and to justify all these all this expansion is to have unfettered access to export markets and if, if that is sort of a, a key driver where are we and what's your your thoughts on on leaving the, the recently uh, negotiated uh, TPP agreement no. And, and, and I'd even go one step further. You say it's a key ingredient. I'd say it's the key ingredient. Um, that if you, if you uh, place one number, and I'd call it 215 pounds of red meat consumption uh, for the United States for the next 10 years and throw a hat around it, it's going to, every single year, we're going to be the same. Uh, and that's on a per capita basis. 
So uh, uh, population growth in the United States might provide you this one to one and a half percent growth, uh, but the vast majority is, is going to have to come from the export markets and our participation and our ability to participate uh, inside those windows. Uh, TPP appears to be you know, uh, well, obviously dead from a United States standpoint. You've got the other countries that are trying to muddle together and have some type of agreement. The NAFTA negotiations are now, I want to say, uh, entering their third round with no indication of any budging whatsoever from uh, from our friends both north or south of the border. Uh, it, it's, it's tough to envision of what does the path look like. It's almost like we've got a light out in the distance through the fog, and all we can see is three feet in front of us. And so we've got to have the faith to say, if I make the next step, uh, I will be able to see what my what my you know subsequent steps look like after that. So uh, you, you are correct. Is exports are the absolute key. And, and what I was sharing earlier of both the confidence that the world has in our uh, food safety systems and our infrastructure and ability to deliver uh, on those uh, obligations is going to be paramount. I think perhaps even more important than what trade agreements get put together, although those are going to be the, you know, the grease that gets under the skids to allow this commerce in order to move forward. You know, uh, you, you had an announcement from uh, from Shineware, the WH group here, I want to say last week, uh, that their imports of products coming into China are going to be constrained relative to where they have been. Oh, that's not a big secret. They, they absolutely are in the near term. Uh, prices have fallen precipitously inside of China. Exports should fall apart. Uh, we, we, being the United States, have not participated very wholly inside that market anyway. The, the European Union is going to be suffering and it's going to put a little bit more product back onto the market. But these are temporary aberrations in what I'm sharing with you of to be a 15 to 20 year vision of where things go. We had, uh, that's very helpful, Joe. Thank you. I'm, I'm recalling a dinner that you and I had um, uh, near your house out there in, in Iowa. And you'd made a comment that producers are likely not going to be, at least producers, I'm talking on the grain side, on bean and corn, may not be uh, witnessing sort of the type of price environment that represented the late 2000s. And they're looking for other uses for their land, um, not just growing corn and beans, in order to try to get margin off of that soil. I'd be curious to know what exactly you meant by that and, and sort of what what are you seeing farmers doing and sort of your view, even though it's not really your, your specialty or scope, but you're out there, your, your view on, on farmer sentiment and um, uh, what you think farmers will need to do if, if, if they're unable to make money growing corn and beans, what do they intend to do with their land? What kind of things are you seeing out there? Well, you know, the, the first thing that you're going to see is, is, is there an alternative use? And uh, in the upper Midwest, we probably don't have a pronounced opportunity uh, for, for a truck market. Uh, you know, if you're in Michigan, you might have uh, potatoes or, or sugar beets in, in Minnesota, that you've got these alternative uses for, for vast quantities of agricultural land. We are, we are going to plant corn. There's just no way around it. As a matter of fact, we've backed ourselves into a bit of a corner here on the last in this last year. It's uh, uh, 
we know several folk and, and uh, those of us in the, in the circles uh, that if you talk to a farmer and you say, I'm going to plant corn on corn, you wouldn't look at him cross-eyed, especially if, if he has a livestock operation where he can take that output directly into his and, and feed his animals. It makes sense. Nobody plants beans on beans. It, it just plain doesn't happen. There, there's many reasons for doing so. Uh, the economics would, would compel you to say, plant beans on beans, yet we won't do it. Uh, and when we have a, this 50-50 rotation that I've just shared with you, 91 million acres on each side, we don't have a place to go. And so the, the mindset and infrastructure that we have in place, just it, it's, not, it's begging for a solution that is not yet availed. We are a corn soy country, and I would contend as much corn as we can possibly plant. Uh, I just ran, uh, ran a balance sheet here on what soy production looks like for next year, and the carryout is nearly 900 million bushels, and that is not the stuff that $10 beans are made of. You have to, uh, you have to trade out on the 2018 uh, values at, at numbers that would give you that type of return. I think we're going to see a, a severe compression inside of pricing uh, that happens on the agronomic side, uh, that land values strangely enough, probably aren't uh, correlated in, uh, in, in their decline in value. Uh, there's enough, uh, enough acres that are held by very, very strong hands, given the windfall that we talked about earlier, uh, that, that, allow, uh, that, that if you are a one-sixteenth heir of grandpa's ground, it's not what's going to make or break you, and you probably aren't real motivated to sell. So we're not going to see that free exchange of ground to establish values. Rents are going to have to come down. The return on investment is going to have to come down into the low uh, one and a half to two percent range is my best guess. But we're going we are going to have to solve our problems not by A, decreasing ground uh, that, that's coming into play, or B, decreasing production. Is we are going to have to be stronger uh, than anybody else. And and uh, the South Americans I think are going to prove to be very, very formidable uh, uh, comp competition as far as the eye can see. Uh, I, I see five years of $3.50 corn, the mitigation of equity to the agronomic side of it, and, and we're going to have just to live with that reality until what I described to you earlier, this, this protein GDP phenomena that's, that's very well established starts to drag us out of that melee. That's uh, really good insight, Joe. Always a pleasure with you. I always learn something new. Um, before we wrap up, do you have anything you'd like to add that maybe you thought I might ask that I did not? Uh, no, just that, uh, th that this packing plants coming back online are being introduced relatively smoothly into the United States. Uh, uh, the prospects of of uh, the, the prestige plant also don't appear to be so incredibly disruptive as to saturate uh, in physical quantity more than the market can take. Everything seems to be very orderly, and a little bit to my surprise and perhaps the surprise of the trade as we roll forward here. Uh, that's all going well. We do, we got a few a few disease issues that we're dealing with, but nothing that's uh, uh, as pronounced as what it's been in years gone by. Genetic improvements are giving just superb growth rates out in the field. It, it's, uh, uh, it, it is a success story, Ivan, that, that in any other industry, you know, we're a bunch of farmers. When somebody says you're doing something well, what do you do? You look at your shoes and, you know, well, I guess, you know, it was all okay. Is any other industry would be touting themselves and in, in on CNBC on the front page about how good they are. We don't do that in agriculture. I think it's one of our greatest 
uh, our greatest downfalls as well as why I love the people that we deal with. Is they are humble people that don't tend to toot their own horn. But we got some really, really good things occurring in the heartland. Well, thank you, Joe. Really appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, another visit out there to, uh, to, to visit with you and Karen. Thank you very much. All right. Ivan, we'll see you soon. Thank you. This discussion has been brought to you by the Agribusiness Advisor Podcast, sponsored by National Securities Corporation, a full-service investment banking firm, member FINRA. Please stay tuned for future conversations with leadership in the agribusiness sectors. If you have comments and questions, please feel free to reach out, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you, and here's to next time.